And this resistance to Jesus, it ramps up, and he finally arrives in Jerusalem for Passover. As he nears the city, he's weeping. His disciples are hailing him as the Messianic king, but Israel's leaders are denouncing him. And he knows that their rejection of his kingdom of peace is going to set Israel on a road of resistance and rebellion against the Roman Empire. It will bring the city's downfall. And it's that destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus symbolically enacts. As he storms into the temple and he runs out the animal cellars, he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. And he says that this place of worship has become a den of rebels and will be destroyed. Now this act, of course, generates a whole series of debates between Jesus and Israel's leaders, all leading up to Jesus' prediction that the Roman armies will one day surround this city. It will desolate it and the temple all within a generation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you're familiar with this story, right? If you, if you grew up in churches, you, you've heard someone preach on this at least once a year, every year. Um, and by the way, it is really hard to preach on the same thing year after year, right? If only there were a new one I could preach on Palm Sunday. Um, so you're, you're familiar with it, right? Everyone knows the story. Jesus comes into the, the city and the people are praising him and it's, and it's you know, supposed to be similar at least to a, like a, a victorious king coming home, and obviously the people, you know, were proclaiming king. So let's just read uh, what's in Luke's gospel here. And it's uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 48. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead and went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. 
but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you have this incredible story. He's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and everyone's proclaiming that he's the king, right? Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, we in the modern world, we don't put the same kind of emphasis on symbolism that they did in the ancient world. One of the things you'll notice as you, in the next couple months, start reading through some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament is that these prophets in the Old Testament um, sometimes do really weird stuff. Like they're, they're called not just to say their prophecies out loud, but sometimes God tells them to actually live out their prophecies and they have to kind of do odd things. Like they're symbolically acting out the message that God has for Israel. So Jesus, as he's coming in to Jerusalem, is actually making an Old Testament reference. And this is not one of the slides, so don't worry about trying to find it. But in Zechariah chapter 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's not just that Jesus' followers said he was king. It's not just that he does this thing where people might interpret it as Jesus is king somehow. It is that Jesus intentionally goes to Jerusalem in a way that lets everyone watching him know that he is claiming the throne of Israel. There's nothing subtle about it that he is deliberately telling everyone watching him, I am the king of Israel and I am coming here to claim my throne. Every Jewish person watching him, because they memorize the Old Testament generally, right? Every single Jewish person watching him knows exactly what Jesus is saying. They know he is proclaiming himself king. He's coming to claim his throne. Now there's a problem because there is already a king in Jerusalem and kings don't usually respond well to someone else claiming to be the king, right? It goes badly. And it's not just that there's a king in Jerusalem, there's, there's an emperor in Rome who also does not respond well to people claiming that they're king and he's not. So this is a bold move on Jesus' part. And then he goes into the temple. And, he, you know, depending on which gospel you read, but the story is, is, you know, sometimes it's as simple in this one as he just chases the sellers out. I like in John's gospel that he sits down, makes a whip, and then whips the people and drives them out. I think that's my favorite, right? Premeditated rage is just great. He makes the whip. I love it. But, but the point is this, right? If you... If you have been reading along in our Bible reading plan. You remember back in Leviticus, it, it gives, if you actually paid attention when you read Leviticus, and uh, be honest with yourself here, right? You know, as it lists the various sacrifices that you can offer, it doesn't just tell you what animals to offer up. It also tells you if you can't, uh, if you can't bring the animal all the way to the temple, you can also just bring the monetary value of it and then buy an animal at the temple, right? So in other words, what the sellers in the temple are doing is exactly what they're supposed to do. It's not the case that he drives out people who are doing things in the temple that they are not supposed to be doing. 
They are doing exactly what the Old Testament says they're supposed to do. They are providing the service that the people need in order to carry out the sacrifices that they're supposed to. What Jesus does is disrupts it completely. He makes it impossible for people to go to the temple and worship in the way that the Old Testament says they are supposed to do. So in one day, he's managed to tick off the Romans, King Herod, and the chief priests all at once. He's very efficient. He proclaims himself king, and the problem is, if Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. And this is why people are excited when he comes to Jerusalem. If he is king, then Caesar is not. If he is king, he's going to overthrow these people, and we will live under his rule and not Caesar's. So they're excited. Right? Finally, finally, it feels to them like God is doing something. He's sending the king he's always been supposed to send to us. We've been waiting for this day. He's going to set us free from oppression. This is great. And by the end of the week, the crowd that was so excited to welcome their king will demand that he be crucified. It's really kind of hard to wrap your mind around it first. I mean, we, we, can, we can get why the chief priests get mad at him. He goes and disrupts the stuff at the temple. You get why the Romans might not like him because he's claiming to be king, even though he's pretty clear that his kingdom is not of this world, right? There, there's, you can at least see why other people might be mad at him, but it's hard to understand how the crowd turns on him so quickly. Because the first things are going well, right? They're hanging on his every word. And we do the same thing sometimes, right? Because if Jesus is king, that gives us a lot of hope, right? Because not, it's not just like he's saying, I'm, I'm like the king of your life and I live in your heart and I only affect the things internally. He's, he's saying, right, I'm the Lord of all creation. If you think back to when we read the end of Matthew, you know, the, Matthew ends with that, the, the, the great commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all the world. But do you remember what Jesus says before he tells them that? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And on earth. In the Gospels, Jesus is claiming very clearly all throughout that he already has authority over all creation. He is not just king of Israel. He's not just king of individuals' lives and hearts. He is the king of all creation. Everything is already under his authority. God is already the ruler of all. Now, he doesn't force people to bend to his will, but he is the ruler of all. Now, think about what that means. Think of how hopeful that really ought to make us. It means evil cannot win. The bad guys can never win because Jesus is king and they are not. You want to look at, at things in this world and how this affects them right now, and you can look at what's happening in Europe right now, and you can say it's, it's fine. Putin can never win. No matter how the war turns out, he can't win because Jesus is king, and he is not. And sad, weak, pathetic little men like him can never gain the power they think they're going to gain through force of arms or through whatever they try to do. They have lost already because Jesus is king, and they are not. All they're doing is stalling for time. They lost. They lost 2,000 years ago, and they don't even know it. We can have hope in all things because Jesus is king and evil has already been defeated. It cannot win in the end. And this, this is the hope that you see in the people of Israel as they're welcoming Jesus in on that first day of the week. 
that here, finally, God is doing something. Finally, God is confronting evil. Finally, God is doing the thing we've been waiting for him to do all our lives and all of our parents' lives and all of our grandparents' lives. And for centuries, we've waited for this moment, and it's here, and they're so excited. Jesus is king, and Caesar is not. You know, history bears this out. We don't even need, like, an act of faith to believe this. We can see, literally, that Jesus is king, and Caesar is not. Because even now, right now, the governing body of the largest group of Christians in the world is in Rome, where Caesar used to sit on his throne. Caesar's gone, Jesus is not. Jesus wins. And look what happens to those who reject the lordship of Christ in their lives. In this story already, Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen to it. He's been warning people over and over again to, to not rise up in rebellion against Rome to not go to war with a world-spanning empire. He tells them over and over again, that's not going to end well for you. And he knows they're not going to listen to him. So he's weeping, right? The day is going to come when your enemies will encircle you. And, and lo and behold, it happens. 33 years later, they go to war with Rome. And four years after that, Jerusalem ceases to exist. The Romans win. And they tear down the walls around Jerusalem and they tear down the temple and it's completely destroyed and they take the Jewish people who rebelled against them and they scatter them across the known world. It's over. And the, the people who listened to Jesus, the, these little communities scattered across the countryside that, that heard what he said and actually lived it out, who didn't partake in the rebellion, they pretty much left alone. They're not fighting, so there's no reason to send soldiers to kill them. Their villages are left okay. And when the temple is destroyed, for them, it's actually this moment of vindication. It's just one more reason that they can trust that what their God said is true. Whereas for their Jewish brothers and sisters, it is a world-shattering event. Their world is over. And it takes a century or more for them to actually recover as a people from the shock of what happened. And it's, it's not the case, by the way, that Jesus is saying, if you don't listen to me, God will send the Romans to smite you. That's not what's happening. He says, if you don't listen to me, you're going to reap the consequences of your own choices. You make bad decisions, and bad things happen because of them. And if you don't listen when God is talking to you, it's just going to keep happening. And that's the story of the entire Old Testament in a way, that God keeps telling people, look, you make bad choices. If you would just listen to me and do what I tell you to do, your life would be so much better. But if you keep making these bad decisions, you will keep experiencing the consequences of the bad decisions, right? It's like when you were a kid and your mom let you touch the hot stove, right? Because you kept trying to and finally she realized the only way this kid's going to learn. Maybe this is just me. <laughs> the only way this dumb kid's going to learn is I let him touch the stove and... You know, right? <laughs> Sometimes you just have to let someone learn through the consequences of their actions. This is really the approach that God seems to take, even though the stakes are often higher. And the scale is a lot bigger. 
Jerusalem is destroyed because they didn't listen to God. Not because God smites it, but because they refuse to listen to the wisdom of their king. And instead of living as he told them to live, they, they decided to live the way that the world told them they were supposed to live. And they sought justice through vengeance and violence and bloodshed. And they failed spectacularly. If Jesus is king, the smart thing to do is to listen to him. He's smarter than we are. He makes better choices than we are. He knows more than we do. And, you know, I, I can say that. I can say it's, it's, it's a good idea for Christians to let God rule over us, to submit to the authority of God. And we would all probably agree that that's a smart thing. But it's one thing to say it and to agree with it, and it's quite another thing to actually do it. Because sometimes the things that Jesus asks of us, they're not easy. Imagine, imagine for a minute that you're a Jew living in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. And, and you are just dirt poor because you've, really you keep having to pay such high taxes to the people who are oppressing you that you can't even be sure you're going to have money to buy food the next day. And that's your daily existence. You are ruled over by a people who think you are just the lowest of the low, who are perfectly happy to exploit you in every possible way to take all the money you have, who couldn't care less that you might not be able to feed your children if they do. And all the people you're supposed to be able to trust, the, the, the priests who run the temple, the, the Jewish king who sits on the throne in Jerusalem who is supposed to be your ruler and your protector, all of them actually seem more interested in collaborating with the Romans and benefiting from their rule than helping you out. And so you're angry. And not all that long before Jesus walks into your town, you would have watched as Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, rounded up 2,000 Jewish rebels and crucified them. And so the hills outside your city are covered in a forest of crosses and decaying bodies, many of whom would be people you know. And you've watched them executed in a fashion that is horrific and brutal and humiliating. And then Jesus comes. And for a brief moment, you think that finally you're going to get some justice, and then he tells you, put down the sword. That's not how we're going to do this. Would you listen to him? Because I've got to be honest, I don't think I would have. I don't think if I had lived through all that these people had lived through that I would have found the guy telling me that peace is the better way. I, I don't think that would have been that appealing. I think I would have rather listened to the guys who say, we're going to gather up an army, we're going to overthrow the oppressors, we're going to do to them all the things they've been doing to us. I think that would be a lot more appealing. I would much rather listen to those guys. It would be much more satisfying. This is why the crowd turns on Jesus. The priests don't like him because he goes and disrupts what they're doing in the temple. And, and in doing so, he's symbolically enacting the destruction of this thing that is their entire livelihood. So they're upset with him. 
the Romans are kind of ambivalent until you'll notice that, that Pilate doesn't really want to do things with him until the crowd says, this guy claims he's king. If you don't kill him, Caesar's going to be mad at you. And then Pilate gives in. So the Romans, the Romans have a problem with him because he's claiming to be the king, which would make him a rebel. But the crowd, the crowd turns on him when they realize what he's actually asking them to do. When they realize he's not going to give them what they want. That's when they turn. And the great irony is that crucifixion is a punishment that is reserved exclusively for rebels. For people who try to overthrow the Roman Empire and and, and it's meant to be this sort of thing that emphasizes to anybody watching that this is what happens when you go against Rome. We have the ultimate power over you. We can do whatever we want, and this is what happens when you try and overthrow us. That's what crucifixion's for. So Jesus, who is actually innocent of being a rebel and is spending all his days telling people, don't you dare rise up in rebellion against them. You're going to lose. The way forward is peace. Jesus is put on trial as a rebel, and he is killed as a rebel, and the people who put him through that are the ones who 30 years later will actually be guilty of the crime for which he is killed. He literally dies the death that is meant for them. We are happy to welcome Jesus as King, as Lord of all creation, as long as he does what we want. As long as he doesn't challenge us in any way, as long as he tells us all the things we want to hear, we're okay with him. The minute he tells us something different, we'll reject him like that. It happens in small little things, and it happens in big things. But we all do it. It's so tempting when we read stories in the gospel to imagine that we would have been standing by Jesus' side the whole way through, right? We would never have been the ones who turn on him. We would always have been the good guys in the story, right? But the reality is we probably would be part of the crowd demanding his crucifixion. Because very, very few people heard what he said and put it into action. Even Peter who is just insistent that he would go to, he would face death right by Jesus' side. What does he do? No, I don't know that guy. Never met him in my life. What are you talking about? Sometimes the things that Jesus demands of us are hard. Now you and I, we, we aren't facing that kind of brutal oppression. Right? Our friends and family aren't being killed in the streets. but we still find it hard to do the things that Jesus asks us to. We find it hard to forgive the people we need to forgive. We find it hard to to make the small little sacrifices that he asks us to make. Because ultimately a life of following Jesus is one of self-sacrifice, constantly. We We just find it so hard to walk in the way of the cross. But the thing is, his way is better. Always. His way is better. 
even if it seems like what he's asking of you is too much. His way is better. Because he's smarter than we are. He sees more than we see. He knows more than we know. He makes better choices than we do. And his way is the way of peace. It is the way of hope. And his promise is that in the end, all of the things that are bad about this world will be untrue. Not because we've solved them. Not because we've collectively worked together to fix our problems, but because in the end, he will get his way. In the end, his will will be done. Jesus is king, and Caesar is not. Thanks be to God. Amen.